Well, let's return to our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 23 and down through verse 27. Uh, before we do that, I just want to thank uh, Joe for uh, filling in last week uh, as I was down at Grace and Truth, uh, opening the word there. Uh, I bring you great greetings from that church in Hartsdale, our sister church. Um, I also want to uh, thank Stefan uh, for filling in for Joanne uh, on very short notice last week. Uh, appreciate his ministry as well. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 27. He was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Charlene, could you just turn this just a hair? It's uh, ringing a little bit up here. Well, this obviously is a classic text concerning discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? One of the problems that the church faces today and always has is that many of those who profess to be followers of Christ are functional polytheists. You know what I mean by that. If you think back to the pre-Christian era, pretty much everyone would have been considered a polytheist. Everyone believed in a multitude of gods. There were gods who had responsibility over a particular people group, gods who had uh, responsibility for a particular uh, city or particular sphere of life. Venus was the god of love. Mars is the god of war. Now, what would often happen, and the Roman Empire is a good example of this, is that when one empire or nation would conquer another, they would often adopt the gods of the peoples that they conquered. And they would take those gods and they would put them in their own pantheon. They just adopt them. This is one reason why the old pagan gods are called different names in different places, but they are clearly the same gods. Jupiter is also Zeus. Neptune is also Poseidon. Venus is also Aphrodite, and so on. You even see this in Scripture. In Luke 19, Luke tells us of the trouble that Paul had when he went to Ephesus. Paul had been there for some months, and so many people were coming to faith in Christ that 
the, those craftsmen who designed and created idols were beginning to get a little worried. You had idol makers like Demetrius the silversmith becoming very concerned that if this continued and so many people uh, came to Christ, his livelihood would be at risk. After all, if everyone becomes Christians, you're left with no idolaters and no one to buy your idols. Then what do you do? The market for idols just crashes. And so they instigated no small disturbance, as Luke puts it. And they whipped up the crowds, and the crowds, Luke says, were filled with rage, and they began crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Well, that's what it says in the New American Standard and most modern translations. Artemis is the Greek god, but if you look at older translations, the King James, or those based on older translations, the New King James, the Old American Standard Version, you'll read the name Diana instead of Artemis. Why? Did somebody make a mistake? Well, no, it's the same god, Diana is simply the Latinized version of Artemis. And so how is it that these different cultures and empires, separated by time certainly, and sometimes separated by geography, end up with the same gods in their pantheons? Well, one reason is military conquest. One empire would supersede a preceding empire, like the Persians uh, superseded the Babylonians and the Greeks superseded the Persians, and the Romans superseded the Greeks, and the victors would simply adopt the gods of the conquered nations. We find an example of that in Scripture as well. You might remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we find the account of a battle between Israel and the Philistines, and that battle did not go very well for Israel. Israel had made the mistake of bringing the ark into their encampment, When the Philistines understood that this is what Israel had done, they were at first terribly frightened because they believed that the ark itself was Israel's God. Being idolaters, that's what they believed. In fact, in in verse 8 of 1 Samuel 4, it quotes the Philistines as saying, Woe to us who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Now, the first thing that jumps out at me is the presupposition of polytheism. The idea that Israel served but one god never seemed to occur to the Philistines. But the important point for our purposes this morning is that even the pagan nations of Canaan still remembered the power of the God of Israel, which was demonstrated in bringing his people out of Egypt. Now, you might think this would dissuade the Philistines from fighting, but as they saw it, there were only two choices. We could fight and die, or we can give up and become the slaves of Israel. And so they fought. But the battle didn't turn out even as the Philistines expected. They expected to die. They expected to lose, but they ended up being victorious over Israel. 
And they also captured the ark, which had so foolishly been brought into their encampment. And that set off what the Philistines may have then referred to as a series of unfortunate events. As you may know, Eli was a priest in Israel and also one of the judges. It seems that he was uh, probably the high priest in Israel, but unless I've missed it, the scripture never actually gives him that designation. There does some to, seem to be near universal agreement that this was the case, not only because of his prominent role as described in 1 Samuel, but also because of his lineage. He was in the lineage of the high priest. In any case, Eli had two wicked sons, you'll remember, Hophni and Phinehas, and these two were present at the battle, and they died in the battle. And the ark was taken. Eli, who was 98 years old at the time and blind, was back in Shiloh waiting for word concerning the outcome of the battle. A messenger comes, tells him that both of his sons are dead and the ark had been taken. And verse 18 says, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died. At the same time, Eli's daughter-in-law, wife to Phineas, was about to give birth. And when she was told that the ark had been taken, and both her father-in-law and her husband had died, she gave birth and died in childbirth. But before she died, she named her children Ichabod, which means no glory. Because, as she said by way of explanation before she died, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been taken. All in all, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Philistines had taken the ark of God and they brought it to Ashdod. And where do you think they put it? They put it in what is described as the house of Dagon. Dagon was their primary god. The house of Dagon was the temple of Dagon. What were they doing? Well, they believed, remember, that the ark was one of the gods of Israel. They probably would have assumed it was their god of war since they had brought it to the encampment. And they were adding another god to their pantheon. But note that they did not build another temple for the ark itself. They just moved him into the temple of the god whom the Philistines believed had just given them the victory. So what does that tell you? It should tell you that they now viewed the ark as a lesser god than Dagon. And one who would now be in the service of Dagon. Well, what does all this have to do with what Jesus says about discipleship? Simply this. There are many who think that they can treat Jesus like the Philistines treated the ark, or as the Romans treated the gods of those they conquered. They think that becoming a Christian means they can simply add Jesus to what already exists in their life. They're adding Jesus to their own personal pantheon, they think that they can keep living their lives as they always have. 
living their lives as they want to, with Jesus simply added into the mix. In their view, Jesus is just one more of those things which exists for their pleasure, which exists to serve them. Before Johnny Cash died, he released a series of recordings, most of which were just stripped-down covers of songs written and previously recorded by others. One of those recordings uh, was a song by a band called Depeche Mode. I think that's how you pronounce it. And the song was called Personal Jesus. I read a quote by the songwriter as he was being asked about this song, and here's what he said about it. It's a song about how everybody's heart is like a god in some way. Now, in my humble opinion, it's a terrible song um, on virtually every level, but this unbelieving songwriter saw something that was true. It sounds very much, doesn't it, like what Calvin wrote? The human heart is an idol factory. The truth that this songwriter had stumbled into, whether he realized it or not, is that even Jesus can become an idol. That sounds strange to us, I know. But we make Jesus into an idol when we see Jesus as something other than he really is. He's a different Jesus. We make Jesus into an idol when we add Jesus to our pantheon of gods. When we look upon Jesus as our own personal Jesus who exists to do our bidding. Is this you? It's something we need to ask ourselves repeatedly. You've changed a few things. Perhaps as Artemis's name was changed to Diana, but the idols are still the same. It's still your life and your will and your way. Jesus is just an add-on to get you what you want. And what you want may not be wrong in and of itself. We don't always just want stuff, you know. Uh, we also want peace. We want to feel like our lives have meaning. We want all kinds of things. Some of it is basic covetousness and greed. And some of it is the longing of the human heart for the experience of fullness for which we were created. It doesn't matter what it is that we want. If Jesus is, used, is, is looked upon simply as a useful tool for obtaining what we want, then we have made Jesus an idol. He's an add-on to our lives. We all know what add-ons are, right? You turn on your computer and you open up your web browser and it does pretty much what you need it to do, but after a while you discover some things you would like it to do that it doesn't do, and so you get an add-on. And then it will sometimes do those things that you want it to do. And if it doesn't, you get rid of it. If it's not useful to you, you uninstall it. That's how some look at Jesus. But Jesus wants you to know he's not an add-on. He is not useful. That is not 
Christianity. That is not discipleship. That is paganism. That is idolatry. The words of Jesus that we find here in Luke 9 are some of the most challenging in the entire Bible. It is a call for the followers of Christ to love him more than we love ourselves. It's a call for us to understand that we exist for him, not the other way around. It's a reminder that it is not for Jesus to get with our program, but for us to get in line with his. It reminds us that we do not take Jesus into our temple to do our bidding. Rather, he calls us to be his temple and to do his bidding. It's a passage that leaves little room for self-deception. It's a passage in which Jesus very clearly lays out his terms. People often try to make deals with God, don't they? I'm guilty of it as anyone else. We've all experienced those times when something happens in our lives. We say, Lord, just get me out of this, please. If you get me out of this, I'll do this, 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 and this. As if God needs anything from us. We're all familiar with the saying, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Well, that's what that is. I'm going to make a deal with God. You do what I want. You show yourself to be useful to me. And then we'll talk about what I do for you. But God doesn't make deals. God sets terms. Jesus sets out those terms for us here in this passage. And they are very clear, very simple, very direct. His terms are unconditional surrender. All right, it's one term. You may or may not be familiar with the fact that General Ulysses S. Grant only received the S in his name when he went to West Point and somehow his name got messed up. It didn't mean anything. It didn't stand for anything. Somebody put the letter there and he kept it, which, you know, providentially was pretty cool because, you know, he, uh, he was called United States Grant and Uncle Sam Grant. And, but his, the most well-known name which came to him came out of the fact that when he was a general in the Western theater of the war and he... Uh, took uh, Fort Donelson and captured a Confederate army consisting of 12,000 men that when the Confederate general sent him a message asking for terms, he said, there's only one term, unconditional surrender. And so he became unconditional surrender grant. If one comes to Jesus seeking terms, the response is the same. There's only one term, unconditional surrender, because God doesn't make deals. 
Throughout our Lord's ministry, he would often repeat this as he traveled from city to city. Even if it's not specifically recorded in the text, we have to assume that this was a normal part of his message wherever he went. Whoever keeps his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Is that what your life is about? Have you given your life to Christ? Does it belong to him? Or are you still holding on to it? Still trying to make deals. Still trying to set conditions. Jesus gives us three pieces of the puzzle right in the first verse of our passage this morning. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must do what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily. Die to self. And follow me. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that we wish, if we wish to follow him, we must deny ourselves? Simply put, it means that we are to love him more than ourselves. He is our priority. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... He is the one who will save it. He's saying that as his people, his followers, we are to forsake anything that would stand in the way of embracing Christ with our full allegiance. Whether it be possessions, power, favor of men, human glory, or anything else. It means we are to deny our self-reliance. We must forsake relying on our human sense of righteousness and totally clinging to Christ for the righteousness of that we need. We must live lives that continually accept grace and glorify Christ. The first condition given by Jesus to any would be follower is to deny yourself. Secondly, he commands that if one is to be a follower, this person must not only deny oneself, but die to oneself by taking up his cross daily. Now remember, Jesus is speaking these words before he went to the cross. So when his disciples and the crowds, when whoever he's speaking to are hearing about taking up their cross, they're not thinking about substitutionary atonement. That's not in their mind. For them, at that time, the cross was simply a means of execution. It was the first century version of the electric chair or the gas chamber or lethal injection. And when one was convicted of a capital crime and sentenced to die by crucifixion, he would carry the cross, or at least the crossbar, on which he was to be hung. From the prison where they kept him to the place of execution. This is what we read about when we read of Jesus' crucifixion. He carried his own cross. Jesus is referring to an actual physical act. And everyone hearing Jesus that day understood this. He was telling them and he is telling us that his disciples are those who die to self daily. Whatever our master calls us to endure or to suffer, we endure it knowing that it is for our good and for his glory. 
not because we can see how it will be good or how it will glorify him, but because he has told us that is true and we live in faith. Because God always speaks the truth. He is always faithful. Many of you are experiencing this in different ways right now. Many of you are suffering. Many of our brothers and sisters have been suffering for some time. When Jesus says these words, he's not only speaking about persecution. Our discipleship is demonstrated in the way we experience any kind of suffering that he brings into our lives. Because as disciples of Jesus Christ, we understand that our difficulties, our trials, are not random. They are not meaningless. They are experiences which God brings to us for our good and for the glory of his name. We can endure because our lives are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We belong to a good and gracious master whose ways are not our ways. Finally, then, we are ready to follow Christ. Just as one daily commits to submitting our will to Christ, we also continually follow where he leads. We walk as he walked. We love as he loved. We speak as he spoke. As followers, we trust, we walk with, we obey, we remain grateful for the salvation that has been given to us, and we respond in faithfulness. But there's a natural question which arises from this, and that question is simply, why? Why would we want to give up ourselves? That's the last thing you're going to hear from the world. Who you are, the world will tell you, is the most important thing. You don't see a greater contrast between how the world thinks and how the Christian thinks than this. Die to yourself daily. Take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow. Jesus explains to us that in doing so, we will receive something far greater than that which we could ever give up. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world or loses or forfeits himself? Jesus is very clear here. Those who live for themselves never get what they desire, and they end up with nothing. Those who deny themselves and live for Christ rather than for themselves ultimately will find what they desire and they will receive everything. Jesus is speaking in terms of investment. He wants us to be good investors. 
Losing self for Christ's sake will result in an infinitely better return than if we were to hoard our present commodities. Lose, give now, and there will be a great return. Jesus makes it very clear that if we don't give ourselves away for the gospel and for him, we will lose eternal life. It's one of the characteristics of a disciple. And a disciple, as you read that term throughout the New Testament, is simply a synonym for Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. There are those that will tell you differently. There are those who will tell you that if you pray a prayer, then nothing else matters. You're saved. Your life doesn't need to change. And you'll still make it into heaven. Scripture says it's not about praying a prayer. It's about the condition of your heart. Do you have a new heart? If you have a new heart, your life is inevitably going to change because God's going to change it. And one of the ways he changes our hearts is through his word. As we hear the words of our Lord, our master, tell us, deny yourself, Take up your cross daily, follow me, and those whose hearts have been changed hear that, and their hearts resonate with it. Yes, Lord. However imperfectly I can do these things that you command me to do, it's what I want to do. I'm going to fail you. It's inevitable. I'm not who I want to be. I'm not who I'm going to be. But this is the desire of my heart. And you have made it so. That's a disciple. That's a Christian. If all we do while on earth is build up things for our own life now, we eventually lose everything. If this is your best life now, woe to you. I can't think of a more horrible reality than to go through life thinking this is as good as it gets. And if one does believe that, then that person is correct. If you believe that this is your best life now, it will be. Because the life that comes after this will not be good for you. Because you will spend eternity in hell. Jesus wants us to know that making the kind of investment he's describing here is not easy. It's going to cost us. That's why he goes on to speak of shame in regard to discipleship. Verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him. When he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the, and the holy angels. What does shame have to do with discipleship? Well, to be a disciple necessitates that we go against the grain of the world around us. 
It necessitates that we stand apart, that we take a stand in regard to things that will never be understood nor approved of by a watching world. We can only endure the shame of the world if Jesus is our ultimate treasure. If we have died to self in such a way that we don't care what the world says. Why do we care about what the world says? It's because there's still a lot of self in here. I want people to think well of me. I don't want people to think I'm weird. If he's our treasure, we won't struggle when we're called to deny ourselves and serve others because we serve in the power of Christ and our treasure is him. It's him. One of the things Joe mentioned last week is that we have an inheritance from God. It's in the future. It's a hope, a sure and certain hope. What is the treasure? It's Christ. It's Christ. It's not crowns and jewels. It's Jesus. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. When Jesus is honored... The hearts of his people are satisfied. But boy, it's a long journey to get to that point, isn't it? Because that's not naturally who we are. It's part of the sanctifying work that God accomplishes in us to change us so that we're no longer ashamed, so that we don't care what the world thinks about us. All we care about is whether or not Jesus is honored in my life. When we get to that point, we won't be ashamed to stand up for Christ. If he is our treasure, we won't be ashamed. But of course, one of the reasons that Jesus has to talk about shame is because he knows that we're human. And we're not perfected yet. And this is something we need to think upon, be concerned about, pursue Now, Jesus concludes his teaching by bringing us back from our eternal prophet to the here and now. He says in verse 27, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. One thing Jesus wanted his disciples to understand is that not all eternal eternal things are future things. There are aspects of eternity which are already experienced now. In other words, there would be blessings for his disciples now as they serve Jesus according to his terms of discipleship, not only off in the future, in the next life. What's he saying here? He's saying that there were some of his disciples who literally would not die until they first saw the kingdom of God. Now we're going to find out what that means next week. Because the very next passage is where we find Jesus on the mountain, transfigured. 
and his glory shining out in a way that his disciples had never seen before. And Peter, John, and James are there to witness it. They are the some of those who are standing there who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. But Jesus' larger point is that as his disciples, we are in the realm of his influence and power now. We don't have to wait until heaven to enjoy the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was established when Jesus came the first time. We now are in the kingdom of God. And if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, if our hearts have been changed, then we are citizens of that kingdom. Our king reigns. So when we speak of discipleship, we need to understand that there are conditions to discipleship. There are terms. And they're put out for us in this passage. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow Christ. Don't ever be ashamed of Jesus. And enjoy the blessings of the kingdom now. Will you meet those conditions? Will you accept those terms? Will you give yourself away for Christ and his people? Don't concern yourself with earthly goods. Remember the rich young ruler. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing the man's heart, went right to the issue. Listen, sell everything you've got. Give it all away. Give it to the poor and then follow me. And he did so and everything was wonderful. He couldn't. He couldn't do it. He walked away. He was sad about it. But he walked away. And Jesus let him go. Jesus let him go. Jesus didn't run after him. I remember many years ago during the presidency of Bill Clinton, they were having a summit. And one of the people involved is Palestinian-Israeli summit. One of the people involved was Yasser Arafat. Madeleine Albright was the Secretary of State at the time. And there was video. Talks had broken down. And Yasser Arafat was walking out to his car to leave. And here comes Madeleine Albright. I guess we could describe it as running. Um, running after him begging him to come back. Jesus doesn't beg. Jesus is Lord, and he has set his terms, and they are non-negotiable. But if you accept those terms, the reward is beyond imagining. If you want to be a disciple... You find in this passage the terms. If we are to follow him, it must be done according to his rules, not ours. 
That is why you must count the cost. It's worth it, but not everybody is willing to pay the price. The price, after all, is death. You are handing your life over to someone else forever. And I will tell you, it is well worth it. You will receive far more than you ever give up. Because in giving up, you receive untold benefits. Just on a very pragmatic basis, Jesus can rule your life far better than you can. Amen? Amen? And eternity, too. Father, thank you. Father, I pray for all of those present here this morning and for those who will hear this at some point in the future. Father, we pray that you would do the work of changing hearts because there's no other way that someone can read the terms which Jesus sets forth here and see glory in them unless you have changed the heart, unless you open their eyes, unless you, Father, convert. Do that work, Father. And for us who, who, in whom you have done that glorious work, we thank you for it, Father, and we, 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 we confess to you that we are not the disciples that we should be. So often, Father, we want to take control of our lives back from you. Father, keep working in us. Keep changing us. May we see the glory of Christ even as we give up our own lives to him. For we ask it in his name. Amen.